Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Think It Ain't Illegal Yet. I'm your host, St. Clinton. On this show, we'll be playing some poetry, spoken words, and other things about political and social issues going on around the world, both past, present, and future, which will hopefully make you think. Fathers of Freedom in 76 formed a new Congress, a nation to fix. Taxation, oppression, unjust British might, the colonial colonies were ready to fight. John Adams, president after Washington's time, diplomat, lawyer, Bostonian mind. Ben Franklin, author, printer, scientist true, Pennsylvania statesman and inventor too. Adams and Franklin, Hamilton and Jay, Jefferson, Washington, even more to say. Hancock and Morris, Witherspoon too. Madison, Rodney, even more crew. From New York, New Jersey, and Delaware State, Rhode Island and Maryland, their numbers were great. A continental Congress with vision, hope, and dreams, standing tall against oppressive British means. Men of conviction, men of heart, the battle for freedom soon would start. Thirteen colonies united in cause, a colonial army that took no pause. King George would send his best brigadiers, but George Washington's boys would show no fear. Minutemen muskets crackle till dawn, through forest and glade, till the enemy be gone. Concord, Lexington, and Bunker Hill, the fight for liberty became a test of will. Thirteen colonies with one grand desire, end English tyranny, end English fire. The battle won, a new nation born, a continental congress had been formed. Philadelphia, where fathers of freedom meet, the Liberty Bell, liberty's ring so sweet. Independence declared, a declaration signed, equality, happiness, human rights defined. A new president named, George Washington's time, the United States is real, not just in the mind. A new nation forged from sweat and tears, an anvil of strength through all the years. Nations abroad would learn from this fight. Tyranny and oppression can never be right. So celebrate well this July 4th day. Let fireworks and happiness light your way. Remember the fathers of freedom today. Their sacrifice and courage paved our way. My father's garden, once so pure. His retirement haven, Shangri-La for sure. Roses danced in a summer's breeze. Spruce stood guard over parading bumblebees. Alas, time has eroded our garden shore. Infirmed and immobile, Papa's flowering no more. His son must now maintain the hedges, but a green thumb is not always part of genetic pledges. Where once stood flowers, shrubs and trees, now rows of makeshift crosses sway in the breeze. Roses, zinnias, glad and moss, all live rotting, decayed and lost. Faded flowers crying in the sun, a son's neglect, not much fun. Thirsty leaves wilt, praying for rain, a lack of caring from a son with little brain. The boy decides to grow some goth, bug-eating plants, carnivorous froth. Now, 
Rows of flytraps smile with glee. The sun imports rare foreign fleas. Shriveled shrubs that new earthly delight now shake with fear at unholy sight. Limbs and loins from insects devoured litter the ground that now looks soured. Wafting scent of garden pure replaced by danky dung-filled moor. Colors bright, alive, and gay, now the hue of carcass clay. Insects enter with child delight, seeking pretty blossoms bright, pure intent to suck the nectar, but witness they a dreadful specter. For this garden hath become pure hell for winged creatures in this dell. Bugs of size and shape so varied are now to Satan's beasts so married. Trapped by leg and insect arm, fly traps exert their damaged charm. Pitchers drown their buggy prey, sundews show their sticky way. Body of ant, mosquito, and fly, testament to hunger that never dies. More and more the flesh ears feed, mad rage to meet their meat-eating needs. And as the summer solstice pass, the flesh beasts gain unholy mass. Void by size and number and shape, upon large prey the traps now gape. Soon insects no longer satisfy their hunger. The carnivores wait for prey in number. Cats and dogs, rats and mice, no longer are insects all that nice. By summer's end, the worm does turn, for the feeding beasts gain a new yearn. Plants that once knew critters fresh develop a taste for human flesh. The sun, he frets his time is near. The monsters smell his sweat and fear. As autumn wanes, he cowers neath tree, but fleshers know he'll never go free. From winter's wet carpet, a lone marigold peers, saddened by loss of her flowery dears. But before she sleeps neath her wintry tomb, she smiles, knowing young gardener has met his doom. A hand appears from out of the snow. The sun has met with ungodly woe. The fly traps have had their last hearty feast, for they have consumed the human beast. When we and the enemy we face both are armed with nuclear weapons which give war itself a new dimension. Well, let's take a look at that broad picture. A major war fought with nuclear weapons obviously is the first challenge we face. But we're well prepared to meet this challenge. The extraordinary temperature of the fireball of a nuclear explosion heats the adjacent air to such an extent that it undergoes a colossal expansion and creates a blast wave which travels in all directions with the speed of sound. It takes about 10 seconds to reach a person standing two miles away. At this point, there's just sufficient time following sight of the detonating flash to drop to the ground or scramble for cover before the blast wave arrives. Our greatest strength lies in our nuclear power and our ability to deliver them. Hundreds of nuclear weapons rained down on Earth for 30 years, spreading fallout and radiation all over the planet. So many nuclear warheads exploded on Earth that the background radiation signature of the whole planet has gone up. They called this war air burst testing and hundreds of atom bombs were exploded in our air during its course. Okay, so they didn't drop bombs on cities, so the death toll was pretty small. Just 
just a few insignificant Pacific Islanders and some communist peasant fucks. So, bring on World War 4, 5, and 6, cause they'll all be good for business. Without testing in the 1950s, there would be no hydrogen bomb. Without testing in the 60s, there would be no nuclear weapon so small that we could fit 14 of them in a nose cone. Without testing in the 70s, there would be no neutron bomb, which leaves property undamaged, but destroys all human life. By stopping testing now, neither we nor the Soviet Union will be able to build nuclear-powered lasers to extend our battlefields into space. Well, our library is growing. We've just been through another atomic test. For a military man, any one of us, the considerations, the problems of atomic warfare are better understood today than ever before. Diagrammatically, an atomic detonation looks like this. Four effects are produced. Light, heat, radiation, and blast or air pressure. Since blast is the primary destruction force of the bomb, let's take a closer look at the blast portion of the event. The bomb is detonated in relatively cold air. The pressure wave produced by the energy released moves faster than the speed of sound in all directions at the same time, in what is known as the incident shock wave. The air is heated by the sudden compression caused by the shock wave. As the incident wave strikes the ground, most of the energy bounces back in a reflected wave. The resultant peak pressure in the reflected wave is about double the pressure in the incident wave, thereby doubling the destructive power of the shock force, or front, moving across the ground. Because the air behind the incident wave is hot, the reflected wave can move faster and gradually compress the base portion of the incident wave into a wall or stem of boosted air pressure called a Mach Y stem. On a graph, the event looks like this. The greatest pressure, of course, is produced at ground zero by the combination of the incident and reflected wave. The pressure gradually drops off as the waves move out from ground zero until the Mach Y develops and increases the pressure again. It was this amplification which extended the area of damage at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Mach Y stem worked over every type of structure. Masonry, steel frame buildings, reinforced frame buildings. From a military standpoint, the atomic detonations on Japan seemed to be pretty effective. So Hiroshima, and Nagasaki became the norm, the basis for curves on blast effects and damage. That's all for today. So until next time, remember, science is far. In the latter days of the 20th century, there arose a difference of opinion. The leading experts of the time believed a nuclear war would only involve the exchange of a few bombs. And then the suitably horrified combatants would sit down at the peace table. They were wrong. In just 10 days, 10,000 years of human progress was virtually blown to dust. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Do not adjust your set. Three.
We interrupt this program for an important message from the president. No! No, 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 no! Oh, my God! It's on all the channels! Everything's preempted! My contrary to Fellow constituents, today's House and Senate meeting has some brand new rulings that I'd like to share. And you know, we Americans are spending more than ever on entertainment. So I am pleased to announce the new entertainment tax. Along with the television tax, movie tax, game tax, standing tax, Like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs! It 
God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. There is really only one thing we can ever truly control. Whether we are good or evil. watching this, you are aware that the world indeed is in grave danger. It is the Acme Chairman's goal to turn the population into monkey slaves to manufacture shoddy Acme goods and then change them back to people to buy the stuff. Unbelievable, you may say. Your mission is this, save humanity. And remember, no one wants to be turned into a monkey. And this human do not adjust your set. I have learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit that many of them do not look at all the same as the hypothetical questions that I have answered freely and perhaps too fast on previous occasions. My customary policy is to try and get all the facts and to consider the opinions of my countrymen and to take counsel with my most valued friends. But these seldom agree, and in the end, the decision is mine. To procrastinate, to agonize, and to wait for a more favorable turn of events that may never come, or more compelling external pressures that may as well be wrong as right, is itself a decision of sorts and a weak and potentially dangerous course for a president to follow. I have promised to uphold the Constitution, to do what is right as God gives me to see the right, and to do the very best that I can for America. I have asked your help and your prayers, not only when I became president, but many times since. The Constitution is the supreme law of our land, and it governs our actions as citizens. Only the laws of God, which govern our consciences, are superior to it. As we are a nation under God, so I am sworn to uphold our laws with the help of God. And I have sought such guidance and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. Theirs is an American tragedy in which we all, all have played a part. It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that, and if I can, I must. There are no historic or legal precedents to which I can turn in this matter, 
none that precisely fit the circumstances of a private citizen who has resigned the presidency of the United States. But it is common knowledge that serious allegations and accusations hang like a sword over our former president's head, threatening his health. As he tries to reshape his life, a great part of which was spent in the service of this country and by the mandate of its people. After years of bitter controversy and divisive national debate, I have been advised and I am compelled to conclude that many months and perhaps more years will have to pass before Richard Nixon could obtain a fair trial by jury in any jurisdiction of the United States under governing decisions of the Supreme Court. I deeply believe in equal justice for all Americans, whatever their station or former station. The law, whether human or divine, is no respecter of persons but the law is a respecter of reality. The facts as I see them are that a former president of the United States, instead of enjoying equal treatment with any other citizen accused of violating the law, would be cruelly and excessively penalized either in preserving the presumption of his innocence or in obtaining a speedy determination of his guilt in order to repay a legal debt to society. During this long period of delay and potential litigation, ugly passions would again be aroused, and our people would again be polarized in their opinions. And the credibility of our free institutions of government would again be challenged at home and abroad. In the end, the courts might well hold that Richard Nixon had been denied due process, and the verdict of history would even more be inconclusive with respect to those charges arising out of the period of his presidency of which I am presently aware. But it is not the ultimate fate of Richard Nixon that most concerns me, though surely it deeply troubles every decent and every compassionate person. My concern is the immediate future of this great country. In this, I dare not depend upon my personal sympathy as a longtime friend of the former president, nor my professional judgment as a lawyer and I do not. As president, my primary concern must always be the greatest good of all the people of the United States, whose servant I am. As a man, my first consideration is to be true to my own convictions and my own conscience. My conscience tells me clearly and certainly that I cannot prolong the bad dreams that continue to reopen 
a chapter that is closed. My conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. I do believe that the buck stops here, that I cannot rely upon public opinion polls to tell me what is right. I do believe that right makes might, and that if I am wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is St. Clinton here. Are you a poet or a spoken word artist? Would you like to have your tracks played here? And send it in an audio format to poetry at sandduneradio.com. Poetry at sandduneradio.com. And we'll add it into the rotation. Oh, yeah. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students of the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents 
This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro baby born in America today, regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half as much chance of completing a high school as a white baby born in the same place on the same day. One third as much chance of completing college. One third as much chance of becoming a professional man. Twice as much chance of becoming unemployed. About one seventh as much chance of earning $10,000 a year. A life expectancy which is seven years shorter and the prospects of earning only half as much. This is not a sectional issue. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every city, in every state of the Union, producing in many cities a rising tide of discontent that threatens the public safety. Nor is this a partisan issue. In a time of domestic crisis, men of goodwill and generosity should be able to unite regardless of party or politics. This is not even a legal or legislative issue alone. It is better to settle these matters in the courts than on the streets, and new laws are needed at every level. But law alone cannot make men see right. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content 
with the counsels of patience and delay. 100 years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes, that we have no second-class citizens, except Negroes, that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state, and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. It is not enough to pin the blame on others, to say this is a problem of one section of the country or another, or to pour the facts that we face. A great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right as well as reality. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act, to make a commitment it is not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. The federal judiciary has upheld that proposition in a series of forthright cases. The executive branch has adopted that proposition in the conduct of its affairs, including the employment of federal personnel, the use of federal facilities, and the sale of federally financed housing. But there are other necessary measures which only the Congress can provide, and they must be provided at this session. The old code of equity law under which we live commands for every wrong a remedy. But in too many communities, in too many parts of the country, wrongs are inflicted on Negro citizens and there are no remedies at law. Unless the Congress acts, their only remedy is the street. I am therefore asking the Congress to enact legislation, giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. 
Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure, but many do. I recently met with scores of business leaders, urging them to take voluntary action to end this discrimination. And I've been encouraged by their response. And in the last two weeks, over 75 cities have seen progress made in desegregating these kinds of facilities. But many are unwilling to act alone. And for this reason, nationwide legislation is needed if we are to move this problem from the streets to the courts. I'm also asking Congress to authorize the federal government to participate more fully in lawsuits designed to end segregation in public education. We have succeeded in persuading many districts to desegregate voluntarily. Dozens have admitted Negroes without violence. Today, a Negro is attending a state-supported institution in every one of our 50 states, but the pace is very slow. Too many Negro children entering segregated grade schools at the time of the Supreme Court's decision nine years ago will enter segregated high schools this fall, having suffered a loss which can never be restored. The lack of an adequate education denies the Negro a chance to get a decent job. The orderly implementation of the Supreme Court decision, therefore, cannot be left solely to those who may not have the economic resources to carry the legal, a legal action or who may be subject to harassment. Other features will be also requested, including greater protection for the right to vote. But legislation, I repeat, cannot solve this problem alone. It must be solved in the homes of every American, in every community across our country. In this respect, I want to pay tribute to those citizens north and south who've been working in their communities to make life better for all. They are acting not out of sense of legal duty, but out of a sense of human decency. Like our soldiers and sailors in all parts of the world, they are meeting freedom's challenge on the firing line, and I salute them for their honor and their courage. My fellow Americans, this is a problem which faces us all in every city of the North as well as the South. Today, there are Negroes unemployed two or three times as many compared to whites. Inadequate education, moving into the large cities, unable to find work, young people particularly out of work without hope, denied uh, equal rights, denied the opportunity to eat at a restaurant or a lunch counter or go to a movie theater, denied the right to a decent education, denied almost today the right to attend a state university even though qualified. It seems to me that these are matters which concern us all, not merely presidents or congressmen or governors, but every citizen of the United States. This is one country. It has become one country because all of us and all the people who came here had an equal chance to develop their talents. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right, that your children can't have the chance to develop whatever talents they have, that the only way that they are going to get their rights is to go in the street and demonstrate. I think we owe them and we owe ourselves a better country than that. Therefore, I'm asking for your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and to provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves to give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talents. As I've said before, not every child has an equal talent or an equal ability or equal motivation. 
but they should have the equal right to develop their talent and their ability and their motivation to make something of themselves. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sam Clinton. I just wanted to drop in real quick and say thank you for listening to this show. Whether you listen through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Plus, Player FM, or any other way, I just want to say thank you. Yeah. All right. Let's roll. Sugar, spice, and everything nice. Let's go. We've been a remarkably stable administration. I think that's good for the country. Will you get to the point, please? All right. Nine trillion dollar debt. My budget includes the largest increase in defense spending in two decades. George W. Bush. Just plain cute. You're too aggressive, too hostile. Let's roll. George W. Bush. Arming to threaten the peace of the world. Make no mistake about it. Let's roll. Most virgin America hold the fun. Gangsters. Dry fires. Earth. Mega fears. Stick-ups. Gee, what a swell country to live in. All right. George W. Bush. He lacks the credibility to be commander-in-chief. We have no intention of imposing our culture. Evil is real. We must act as Americans, arming to threaten the peace of the world. George W. Bush will never seek a permission slip to defend the American people. The great goal for America, make no mistake about it, extending American compassion throughout the world, threatening America, George W. Bush, reliable and affordable, threatening America, we've made a fine start, George W. Bush, the face of terror, America is dependent on foreign oil, reliable and affordable, George W. Bush, axis of evil, I really think if you walked into a cabinet meeting and started hurling your feces at the wall, Bush would name a state after you. George W. Bush. Just plain cute. Sugar, spice, and everything nice. Win the war, protect the homeland, and revitalize our economy. George W. Bush. Just plain cute. Sugar, spice, and everything nice. Threatening America. All right. Mr. Bush, as the great leader. I know we can overcome evil with greater good. The new USA Freedom Corps, arming to threaten the peace of the world. They are evil.
extending American compassion throughout the world. Let's roll. I know the folks at the Crawford Coffee Shop couldn't believe I'd say such a thing. We've made a fine start. Let's roll. George W. Bush. Arming to threaten the peace of the world. Make no mistake about it. Let's roll. Those birds in America hold the fun. Gangsters. Riot. Fire. on the show. There's Poet Soul 30. Raising Vibrations. Stutter C. Creative Culture SW. Miss Taylor Ray. Noble Series. Star Fox 55. Kuwaiti British. Leslie Wood. Monica Renata Rider Die Ember Gleams Music Music Means Life Milk No Sugar Ishani Jasmine Awesome Music Prince Raymond Deville Stone Patron Saints of Pop Culture Jay White 
D angelic poetess and there's so so many more if you'd like to shout have me shout you out just leave a tweet to sand doom radio oh yeah now back to the show your space stewardess, Miss Matthews speaking. We wish you a pleasant journey and request that all passengers fasten their seat belts. Floating around in space is, is wonderful. Even then, assuming that money, time, health, and aptitude are no problem, there's still one more hurdle to leap. Space Shuttle Atlantis is on the launch pad ready to fly, and we are about to take a closer look at STS-117, a mission to continue building the International Space Station. Stand by is wonderful. The, the views are spectacular. 16 sunrises and sunsets a day, if you can find the time to look at them. You see a planet without borders, day and night. Just, just fabulous views. I wish everybody could see them. have unveiled a new design especially for space tourists, people like us who have no special training but who want the chance to blast off into the stars. It all sounds pretty crazy, but it could be a reality in about five years' time. A ticket to space will cost you £100,000. £25,000 worth of oil. It's true. In space, no one can hear you scream. Floating around in space is, is wonderful.
So, it's time for us to say so long. Ciao, arriva dolci. Because we're at the end of for the love of poetry and spoken word. Oh, yeah, it's over. We'll see you later. your host, St. Clinton, oh, oh yeah, here, I'm saying, goodbye, You gave me the ammunition back, but in a breath took it away. With no room to move, I'm limited to what I can say, as I live in a glasshouse box, with this pile of accumulated rocks that are useless to me. I cannot cast one at thee, so I keep a stone-cold face, to match your hot mouth pace, as over the details I listen to you skip, whilst I bite my bottom lip, standing in my glasshouse box with my pile of collected rocks, as I already know to the depths you're prepared to go, but I'm limited to what I can cast, when you keep throwing up the past into my face, salt into the wound, bitter taste. Visions of the future. Visions of the future. Three. Was there ever a time when you were not? Cooperative. No point in fighting battles you can't win. We are the power in everyone.